Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Finding Harmony. Today, we are sitting down with a dear friend of mine who is such a devoted practitioner, and we are covering a wide range of topics. Lucinda, who I met back in 2016 when I was teaching in Bristol, is such a dedicated practitioner and a teacher of Ashtanga Yoga. And first and foremost, as she says, she is a mother. But when I met her, she was yet to become a mother. And actually, she came and practiced with me when I was in Mallorca in Spain a few years later. And she was pregnant at the time. And she had such a wonderful way of modifying all of Intermediate Series to account for her uh, growing baby bump belly at the time. I think she was six months pregnant at the time or maybe even seven months pregnant. Um, And it was just so wonderful to see such intelligence in her modifications and in the way she was practicing and her approach to practice. We don't talk too much about her prenatal practice, but we do talk about her postnatal practice and how her practice has changed since becoming a mother. We also dive into her history, which is quite interesting, growing up between London, Oxford, and then later in Bath in England. Um, She has a very unique uh, childhood in that her parents were divorced when she was very young, and her mother was a manic depressive and alcoholic. We talk about how our childhood and these experiences with a parent who is suffering and um, dependent on substances uh, has shaped us because it was a topic that both Russell and I could relate to. And we also talk a little bit about how many of the friends that we've met in Mysore and students that we've met in Mysore also have a similar history and how this practice kind of attracts um, adult children of alcoholics or children of alcoholics um, who themselves are either in recovery or who are trying to process a lot of that childhood trauma that is there that goes unspoken, untalked about, even unlooked at at times. So it's a really, really beautiful conversation. Uh, Her father was a very interesting guy, still is. (laughs) He does a lot of spiritual um, coaching and counseling. And uh, Lucinda herself uh, engaged in and trained and practiced in systematic constellations, which is a therapeutic tool used to map out family systems and access information to help people heal. And so we kind of dive into that topic as well a little bit, asking about what this syst- systemic constellations um tool is and how it's used and and how she's used it in her own training and then also what yoga brought to her training um, that she was doing and her use of of this as a type of healing therapy for people and how she's evolved and changed in her approach to working with students 
um, over time. So it's a really, really beautiful um, episode. We're also going to talk about injury. Uh, Lucinda had a very difficult um, knee injury that she's had to work through. And she also had uh, uh, adrenal fatigue as well, like very intense adrenal fatigue. So it's there's so much in here. <laughs> I, I can't wait to share this episode with you. Uh, both Russell and I walked away just feeling totally um, like it was a brilliant conversation and just so privileged to have Lucinda sit down and discuss so openly with us so many different experiences that she had growing up and many of the things that she's come to experience or come to grow from in her own yoga practice and how she continues to evolve and change with different seasons in her life. So I know you're going to love it. And if you happen to be in the UK, um, I will be in York coming up uh, in a couple weeks. So I have a workshop in York the 26th, 27th, and 28th of May. And uh, it might be full. I think it's full, but maybe there's a wait list. But if you can't make that workshop, I would love to have you join me in Turkey on retreat. There's a couple of rooms left, either six days or 12 days from June 1st to the 6th or June 7th to the 12th. They're come for the whole two weeks, which will be totally transformative. I'm so excited about this amazing group. We're going to go deep. We're going to integrate some, you know, personal uh, introspection and reflection as well as the somatic practices of pranayama and asana and just really um, reconnect to spiritual discipline and personal practice. So if that's something that you're excited about and would love to really have this sacred time and space to work on yourself and and create a, consciously a, a future for yourself or what you'd like to really bring into being or call forward in your life then this is the retreat for you so that's in turkey june 1st to 12th you can find that link in my show notes And if you're just looking for a weekend, there's one more weekend that I would love to have you attend. I will be in Germany, in Munich, June 16th, 17th, and 18th at Ashtanga Spirit, Munich, with Asta Kaplan, my dear friend, who also was on the podcast last year. And uh, that's a weekend workshop with Mysore, and I can't wait to be back in Munich. It's been gosh, eight years since I was in Munich last, and I'm really excited to uh, be back there teaching the students. And so if you're in Germany or in Europe and you'd like to pop over for a weekend, I would most love to connect with you in person there. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Lucinda Leichman to you. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with my co-host, Russell Kay. Harmony? Hi. Um, <laughs> we were falling asleep last night, and you fell asleep quite More early. More like I was falling asleep yeah, you last fall, night. You, you fell asleep quite early, uh, You typically several hours before I do. And <laughs> I, I, 
And I don't fall asleep that early. Like it was after 10 p.m. So anyway, I started watching Succession and I saw an episode and it was uh, do you remember the episode where they all go back to England to see mom and yes. mom lives in a, like a fucking palace yes. or manse yes. in, um, in, uh, in some former slaveholders uh, residence. Yes. And um, Kendall is having like a, he's having a meltdown. Um, he's kind of reckoning with his own addiction issues. He's reckoning with, um, <laughs> His, you know, that his choices have led to uh, the death of a of a young man, mm-hmm. and he just needs to talk to mom about it. Yeah, and um, and she says, "Is is this is this going to be a quite a difficult conversation? Because wouldn't it be better better uh, over an egg?" Yeah, right. and uh, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really kind of struggling, mom. But maybe it'd be better over an egg. And so he, as you remember, he wakes up. Yeah, and she's gone. She's fucking left. She's not up for those difficult conversations. She fucking took off, man. And he's sitting there at the breakfast table, and you know, and uh, Roman comes in and says, "Where's mom? Are we having breakfast?" And uh, Eggies, and uh, he's just like looking at the letter that his mom has left. Like a dear, dear John, dear Kendall letter. Dear Kendall letter. And (laughs) I'm not up for difficult conversations. It's such an example of what children of alcoholics kind of have to to deal with is like <laughs> not having a good enough mom like she's yeah. really not a good enough mom no and then um first thing in the morning you, you said to me wake up we're interviewing lucinda <laughs> about alcoholism and like, oh like right. no it's not just about that hello lucinda good how are you morning, lucinda. i'm so I'm good guys how are you <laughs> well you know what i did i was just in kansas city and i binge watched on the way home all of season five of the crown and oh. I was thinking of you because <laughs> your grandfather was secretary oh, yeah. to the queen, That's right? right. He right. was. He was. He's basically a character in that TV show. Although they left him out, which oh. is really oh. sad. Um, <laughs> I think for continuity, because they would have been chopping yeah. and changing a lot of the role. But I know. He is, yeah. But his, he, he's in there in spirit. He's like that, that guy. Yes, he's that guy. He's Secretary. the Martin, Martin, what's his name? Yes. Uh, character, yeah, that's him. I'm sure he, they changed, like, kind of it's, off and on, um, as much as prime ministers did. They, they least, changed, right? I think he was there for about nine, nine or ten years. Wow, that's a long, time. a long time. That's amazing. And so, yeah. how, help, help, we're, you know, we're not from... I lived there for some time, and I I like to put on the airs and graces, but of course, it's very it's very weirdly off my British accent. Um, can, can you help us with the whole? To me, he sounds like a servant. He's like a personal Ooh. slave, but he's actually quite posh. And so that makes you posh, but you're actually just like the child of a of a slave, like the rest of us. She's a, bo- a child of Bohemian. But yeah, so, like your mom, your mom's sister went off with some rock star that you're going to tell us all about. And uh, so, t- <laughs> help us with the whole class thing because we have no class. <laughs> we only have um, ethnicity over here. We just have yeah, money. right. That's and all money. We have. Well, it's yeah. decided by money, right? So whereas here, it's decided by birth. 
Right. And, um, and actually, my grandfather was the first non-aristocrat to hold that position. Wow. So he was, he was actually quite middle class yeah. um, and worked incredibly hard. And mm-hmm. so, so moved through various um, positions to get that position. And the private secretary is the Queen's closest advisor. They um, write a lot of her speeches with her and they, they go everywhere with her. They travel everywhere with her. Um, yeah, I mean, that's they do it. like They're all of her calendarizing advisor. as well. Oh, like and they do staff, all of her. Yeah. yeah, it's a chief of staff. It's, it's exactly it's what not a staff somebody. and personal advisor. It's not a servant. Yeah. Not just like yeah. a body man with a cup of tea. No. No, I think they're yeah. her ladies in waiting and her butler and things like that. Yeah, mm. they hold the tea and the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This guy has the notepad and the calendar. And he the, has like... the red. He has the red box. The red yeah. box that comes in every day. That's right. He carries the red box. Yeah, yeah. he brings it in every day. Oh, Fuck. Yeah. That's amazing. So, wow. Yeah. What a job. But you can't really rise in class. Like once you're born, that's kind of it. Like you can't. Like you're not going to like be a, an aspiring aristocrat that's not done <laughs> no so he can't suddenly make loads of money and get an estate and inherit right. a peerage but what he did get was <clears throat> he became an honorary peer so he was in the end lord more and he was a sir before that so they oh, become part of the house of lords but it's not inherited so um okay. we don't all then get to jolly around being lords right. and ladies this was, yeah, this, this I'll same, call you Lady Lucinda. <laughs> Thank you. That would be great. Sherrod explained that same thing um, to me when I was exploring Hinduism. It's like, no, caste. not going to happen. It's kind of the same thing it's as caste. It's not going to happen for you. Yeah. You are yeah. not going to, to become Indian. Like, either you're Brahmin or you're not. Either you're... You are forever Westerner to me. Yeah. That's it. Either you're nobility or you're not. Like that kind of. And for, like, for, he might very well have fucking inherited that uh, notion from the British in the first place. Yeah. Well, that's why I think the colonization of India was so successful is because we had a very similar, like, class and caste system and they kind of overlapped. And I think the British probably utilized that. To sure. do that to their advantage, um, yeah. to their advantage, yeah. And so your grandfather was a big part of that of colonizing India. That's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Isn't it? <laughs> well, actually, his mother was Indian. Wow, oh, that's his... right. I forgot that. Yes, yeah, so she you. was. She was Indian and came back over with his father and passed as white. Um, oh wow! Yeah. So in the same way where that was she I try from? To be British she was that's from. I want to say Lucknow. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, like up now. And it was really, yeah. it was actually really renowned for courtesans and oh. the colonial British going there for that reason. So, you know, there's oh. a whole, and we don't know much about her. So I think there's probably a whole traumatized history there too. Are you wow. saying that, she, are you suggesting that she might very well then? Yeah. At least the daughter of. Oh. Probably. Yeah. 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 This is yeah. so fascinating. So you have like I'm the like a, an eight Indian genetics. You're like an eight Indian. Is that true? Yeah. 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 I mean, probably there's some Middle Eastern DNA in there as well. Because well, yeah. Lucknow is 
in, in yeah. America, that would have put you in one of the segregated schools. So that's something. Yes, that would, that would definitely determine my class level it over there. Would yeah. That'd be really interesting to do a uh, one of those like DNA swaps. Yeah, we did, did one. We did one. Yeah. Actually, yeah. weirdly, I I didn't. I wasn't that fussed, but my husband really wanted to do it. So, um, so we did it, and mine had it did have one percent Indian. Yeah. genetics yeah um but my grandmother my mother's mother was from ireland so most of it was seemed to be from there oh yeah, yeah. and they were tri- they were tribal and that could be like they were tribal kings and queens so they could track it all the way back to um really really early on which was quite wow. cool yeah, that is yeah. that's amazing Hunt is like 80 percent scottish <laughs> I have a lot of it is, it's true i'm not i'm not exaggerating well scottish the scottish yeah. and irish dna is very similar because they married a lot so it's yeah, it's it helps. i have a lot of scottish too <laughs> you find in the colonies that we're quite are kind of obsessed with um our genealogy out of insecurity i think is what you call it. <laughs> <laughs> well i get it because like that's it's that huge move of of people from one place to another, yes. that huge yeah. migration. Yeah. It's looking for roots, isn't it? Whereas I always felt really that my roots are here very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're yeah. over there. Uh, yeah. My, um, my ex-wife's father used to say about the Americans, um, especially during the war, that the Americans were the Yanks. <laughs> Uh, oversexed and over here. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a nice, oh, a nice little nice. expression to remember from the old days, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, my grandfather's sister actually moved to the States when she was 15. Oh, uh, wow. On her own. Very like young. A, yeah, really young with a drama company um, oh. and never went back. So I've got American cousins on the West Wow. That's... You have quite the, that's really amazing that like from your grandparents, those were your mother's parents? Yeah. So then they had two children that were quite eccentric, would you say? Yeah. Oh, oh yes. My, my grandmother and my, yeah, my mother and my aunt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, so they're the child, they're the, the offspring of the Lord. Yes. yes. Lord Moore, yes. Lord well, that Moore. figures yeah. that they would have quite a hard time of it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think it was, you know, um, they're very different, my mum and my aunt, and um, they, they reacted very differently to their upbringing. Mm. And it was, it was incredibly privileged, you know, it was incredibly privileged right. upbringing. And they were in Singapore for about five or six okay. years. Christ, because my grandfather worse. was the high commissioner of Singapore. Oh, and oh, so they had like armors who washed them and bathed them and things. Wow. Um, and just, yeah, they called them their armors. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like mothers. <laughs> yes, basically. That's so amazing. In absence my, of. <laughs> my mom yeah. took that as her, as her grandma name. She said she wants everyone to call her Ama because she been to India once. <laughs> she liked that name. She liked it. Wow. Nice. But being, but like being, being, um, what do you call it? An expat or colonial in Singapore is even more fucking privileged than being posh in, in, 
in Britain. Like that's quite a big, that's quite a big difference or in scale. Yeah. Yeah. Really big difference. And, um, and kind of interesting, because like I said, they weren't aristocratic, so they didn't have a lot of money. And the, the income isn't, you don't get paid a huge amount of money. You get paid like a civil right. servant, but you don't have any costs. There are no living costs. Everything else is paid for and you live in wherever beautiful house that you're given to live in where you need to be um, with servants. With the armors. <laughs> with, with the armors, yes. Army. Bathing them at 15 years old. Wow. <laughs> so, so weird. Fun. Yeah, that was a that was a really interesting experience oh. I had actually. Um, like at a Kerala ashram, an Ayurvedic ashram, and every morning for like I don't know, I think we were there for maybe a week. Um, you're getting these Ayurvedic treatments, and so you'd be on the table, and you know, in Ayurveda, you're like wearing nothing basically, right? Like I mean, nothing really, and. And then after the treatments, there'd be like a servant girl there and she'd like scrub you down and like wash you like a baby. (laughs) And I was was an adult and I was like, this is really fascinating and bizarre and weird. Weird, yeah. With that funny rough salt as well, that like scrubbing stuff that's abrasive and... And she's just like picking up your arms and like you're just like there was two of them actually and you're just like oh, okay I'll just oh, sit geez. here and pretend that I'm an object. Yes. Was, was that the one that went kind of a bit rapey? Yeah, that was the uh, oh, no, really what the, yeah. the the girls washing you? No, the no. girls were fine, but the doctor was um he was a uh, rapist. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say. <laughs> yeah i don't know that's I mean, that's not good is it that's not very yeah. cleansing in a <laughs> feel exactly healing let's just no. put it that way <laughs> no, it felt a little bit like the other side of yeah expanded, expanded on your spectrum of, of sort of, of traumatizing me come retreat get traumatized right and and also you're like in the jungle and there's like no one around and so there's nowhere to go even there's nothing to do you're like trapped there what did you do stuck it out yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then laughed and and reflected on my experience and thought it wasn't so different from the rest of your time in India. It's the whole thing's kind of a bit rapey. The whole thing's yeah. a little bit rapey, but <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm not sure that was a good recommendation. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'll be recommending that to anyone. And yet, you continue to recommend people go to no, India. No, I'll go to India, yeah, but not that because particular. Carry your stick with you. Parcel of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Back to mean? the interview. <laughs> so, about about your talk atrocious. about you. Yeah, let's talk about you. <laughs> and what do you think happened to your mom? Was a bit difficult. What do you think happened to her that was so? Um, I mean, she, as you said, um, you may, maybe we didn't say it on in the interview yet, but you said that. Um, uh, for example, 
in the bio that you sent us that you left quite early. You left when you were 12 because you'd had just about enough of it. And I wonder if you could set that up for us. Like what, what was it? What was she like? How do you think she came out that way? Um, well, my grandmother used to slightly brag, but also slightly confess that she broke my mum's will at the age of two. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and you, I can kind it's a terrible thing to say, but I, she was very fearful. And my mum used to tell me that even at seven years old, she would walk to the shop and she'd say to herself, am I really here now? Am I really here now? And after seven times, she wasn't here anymore. So from a really young age, she was trying to escape her body for whatever mm. reason. And I think my grandmother yeah. probably picked up on that. And my grandmother, who is um, very or was very in her body and um, came from Irish background and quite Catholic, probably at some point, they weren't at that point. Uh, I think that terrified her. I think having a child that was she didn't understand and couldn't control terrified her. Mm-hmm. And she she then just took control of her. <laughs> but then my mum continued to find ways to escape. Right. So kind of disassociate. So disassociate, yeah, and just want to be elsewhere in fairyland, fantasyland, wherever it was she could go. Mm-hmm. She wanted to go there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Do you think she mm-hmm. was experiencing some kind of trauma? Or do you think Did it you was... harm? No, but like... <laughs> I think that no, did she ever talk about anything like that or no it was just really not from, just... not at a young age no I think it was in her nature I think her yeah. nature was to be able to go into that very otherworldly space and um, be very disconnected and that was that then set up a battle between her and her mother um, right. which lasted the lifetime yeah. Mm. Her mother wanted her to be like present and grounded and like yeah and 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 not imaginative. I don't think it was not imaginative. My grandmother was really wild and creative and funny. I think she wanted. I think she was afraid of that otherworldliness mm-hmm. of whatever that was. And also, my grandmother was naturally very controlling, so right. she also wanted to control it, and that was something that she could see that mm-hmm. she couldn't control you know if someone's mm-hmm. able to disassociate from themselves at that young an age I can understand I think I'd find that quite scary if my child was doing that mm-hmm. so powerfully at such yeah. a young age yeah. um, and then yeah that desire to control her then became a fear because my mother repeatedly went found different ways to escape that control and so she right. then became very fearful that it was going to end badly. And so they yeah. got in this really awful um, relationship where they were very codependent and um, just playing on guilt and shame between each other a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I think it was really painful. But also my mother now just has nothing but wonderful words to say about her and how much she misses her <laughs> Yeah. all of that so yeah yeah, mm. yeah. it's it's funny how you can have a a, a, a mom be a, a good enough mom for one child but kind of just not have the right chemistry not have the right disposition for the other for another child and you know it's just sometimes it's just not the right 
mix. Yeah, although I don't think my aunt would say she was quite the right chemistry <laughs> for her either. Yeah, considering she ran away yeah, she, 15 to she, America. Yeah. So that was my grandfather's sister, but my mother's okay. sister ran off with her then-to-be husband when she was about 15. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and so um, he was... He was um, in like deep purple or twisted. He was in Ge- he was Genesis. It was, it was Peter Gable she married. So oh. um, what? <laughs> she broke up the band. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we'll look her up. The no, computer. no, the Eagle on Salisbury Hill broke up the band. Oh, no. <laughs> that was Jesus Christ! Come on, it was Jesus. It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus came down. That's amazing. Jesus. Oh my gosh. Wow. So funny. We could talk all about Salisbury Hill, but I think that's probably a bit of a departure. You know, I can see it from my window. Ah. My window, yeah. Oh. The the beauty of that song is it's kind of like walking around, says Sussex, and and thinking about how off-putting an evangelical experience of Jesus Christ would be to the working man of Britain. It's like, which, what, what are you fucking on about? Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you know about the working man of Britain? <laughs> Schoolboy. What, what, what does Jesus know about the working man of Britain? <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> and it's just like, ah, oh, it's just like, it's that song is, it makes perfect sense in, in America because every fucking idiot has an evangelical experience of Jesus here. But like in Britain, no one does <laughs> it's that. so beautiful. No one fucking experiences Jesus Christ and all his beauty. <laughs> but here it's like, I, I was like, uh, I was like fixing a fence with your uncle. And he stopped for a moment to tell me about the majestic presence of Jesus in his life. I was like, fuck <laughs> off. Dave, can we just fix the fucking fence, man? I just want to fix the fucking fence. We've been out here four and a half fucking hours. I don't want to hear about fucking Jesus Christ. I'm a fucking Jew! Would you fucking stop? Boy, that may have got a bit loud. A little bit too much. A little too much. Oh, that's so funny. The drama. The drama of it all. Yeah. God damn it. I'm a fucking Jew. <laughs> but I'm not even that Jewish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're Hinduish. <laughs> no, when I was twelve, I converted to Presbyterianism, which is a Scottish uh, Jesus uh, cult. Cult. When you were twelve, and I was, I was quite lonely, and they were Aww. quite nice, and they fed me. Aww. My mom wasn't. <laughs> she listens to the show, but she was not feeding me. You understand? <laughs> so. They offered free food and old ladies. I was like, oh my God, please. This is what I needed. Oh, you know. the gaping hole in my heart is an old lady with food. Oh, oh help me, Lord. Help me, Jesus. Oh, and they're very really nice and, and posh in their way. And they were, you know, fancy, you know, Presbyterians, you know. And, shoes and dresses. and Oh, shoes and scarves. I used to dream of shoes and dresses. Used to dream of socks. <laughs> used to dream of socks. Couldn't imagine having socks. <laughs> oh, these old ladies were so nice. And so I gave up. Um, 
I didn't know that I was Jewish at the time, but I gave it all up for Jesus. He didn't know he was Jewish. <laughs> no, one told, no one tells you in Illinois that you're Jewish because that's how you could get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's funny you say that. It reminds me of when um, my mom went into treatment a couple of times or three times. And I would go and, <laughs> go and visit her. And oh, they yeah, had the most amazing cakes. Amazing cakes. And orange, like this drink orange drink on like tap and you could have yeah. whatever you wanted oh. and I just I loved it I loved it so much my mom was being looked after and there was all this food that I could eat and oh. yeah, this was good. you got a good yeah. in here mom good. it was pretty cool I thought it was like orange pop. yeah <laughs> it was it a good place seem- but, so, it's, but I didn't convert. Weird. I didn't convert to alcoholism to join the gang. No. Convert <laughs> to alcoholism. So how many times your mom was put in a treatment center for her addiction to alcohol? Yeah. So um, other things. It, they were the kind of posh addiction centers, you know. Yeah. yeah. Nice. You pay to go and with the cakes and the orange. With drink. the cakes yeah. and the orange pop. Um, <laughs> and I. I don't remember exactly how old I was when she went in. I just, um, and what exactly happened. I don't know whether it was her choice or her parents kind of said, you know, you got to go. Or my dad was saying, you got to go. I don't, um, I don't remember. But she got thrown out the first two times. Um. (laughs) She got thrown out because they really, she she snuck off to go for a drink with someone. Yeah, um, I think both times. I think both times she like, just snuck off to the pub somewhere, and it's, oh it's so funny because comparatively, she wasn't. She wasn't. I don't want to say she wasn't a real addict, but she could kind of take it or leave. You know, she didn't have to. Yeah. She thought the whole thing was kind of a joke. It was quite um, a little performative yeah. at times, I think, mm-hmm. and um, and so they just thought, oh, I don't know what to do with you isn't going to work <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to do our statistics any good well but i know that oh, no, I, yeah, you yeah. go ahead you go ahead i, know. <laughs> I have loads of yeah. well no but it's it's interesting because i feel like it i mean in england as in canada it's such a part of the fabric of our culture mm. you know drinking and even i mean the queen's mother what right she was like a gin tonic a day yeah, yeah. like i mean and it was, it was very much even my great grandmother would have her like glass of sherry every day mm. as her nightcap. And I mean, you know, not that she was getting ragingly drunk or anything, but it's very much. Um, the rages came when you didn't drink. <laughs> yeah, yes. a part of um, <laughs> sort of normal life, I feel like, in, mm. in our cultures and not really frowned upon as like something negative or bad yeah so it's sort of a a tricky a tricky thing Mm, (laughs) because it's very social and very much accepted as the norm but also it can turn can turn bad (laughs) yeah it's social and it's ritualistic isn't it and I think like my grandparents both did that um had a drink at lunchtime it was always the same drink and always yeah. had the same drink in the evening. And then, but when my grandfather retired, I mean, he he was definitely an alcoholic. You know, he'd sit with one of those giant bottles of wine next to his seat. 
And, um, you know, he'd put a shot of gin in a pint of bitter and things that were just like really, um, really outrageous. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, my mum's definitely an addict, but I, I feel like there are different types of addicts. I think there are different types of, ty- different types of addiction too. We, yeah. uh, we had a conversation with our friend from Ohio um taylor hunt taylor hunt and mm-hmm. we we were talking about the same the same topic about different types of addicts and you know you know i'm a I, i'm a coke baby <laughs> and um the child of alcoholics and um but i also don't really think the real addicts because they could take it or leave it they mm-hmm. both stopped cold turkey and with you know no problem they stopped smoking with no problem you know mm-hmm. um though they could also um take enormous quantities of drugs and alcohol mm. like that would kill a horse um and i discovered late in life that i could as well which is a surprise <laughs> to me. um and but at this at the same time we're talking to taylor it's like no no you 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 guys are normies aren't you i was like i was offended I was like fuck you i'm a normie like i'm a fucking coke baby it's like no no you're a normie because if i take a sip i'm fucked i wake up three days later with you know uh horrors and track marks <laughs> it's like oh right yeah okay that's you you cannot stop once mm. you start it's like yeah so that's there is this spectrum and range and um, but i think i mean i i think there's like just to your point i, I want to finish the okay point. finish the, your point i think the no, I'm the, I got to make a transition now, but um, the, I, I think what we're what we're talking about is a kind of mindset, and what that mindset does to uh, our friends and family. Mm-hmm. And for example, you mentioned this word outrageous, and I think it's it, it speaks to a kind of um, peculiar view of boundaries that the alcoholic family and the child the children of alcoholics live with is like the the alcoholic sits there in their chair and and says things that they really shouldn't and the the children grow up uh thinking that 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 what's what's right um can be just about anything and that's a real problem and so for example you know uh What's normal is is very much anything as well. Yeah. Normative (laughs) behavior is outrageous. And that that can create problems, a a lot of problems, uh, when you go out into the the world. And, you know, for example, like, you know, my... It also creates a lot of solutions as well. Yeah, my childhood trauma (laughs) is is put on, you know, performed display for our podcast. So, for example... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but it is. I mean, that's kind of fascinating. I mean, it creates it creates, yeah, some maybe loose boundaries or um, places where where judgments are not um, critical, maybe. <clears throat> Um, but that can also be helpful in our society too, to be in a non-judgmental place, right? Not judging everyone as right or wrong or good or bad or all that, right? You're just like, yeah, it is what it is. Listen, maybe you could tell us what, what you're living with. And also you did some research on this, which I think is fascinating, which I'd love to hear about what you, you observed. Yeah. So, um, so I did, and it was really interesting because I think, um 
I never really thought of myself, even though my mother was definitely an alcoholic and is still an addict and is addicted to very high prescription painkillers. Um, I, I never... I never thought of myself as traumatized. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was affected. <clears throat> I knew that it had impacted my life, but I didn't think that that was trauma. That seemed like a big word to me. It seemed like something for someone who had a lot more trauma. Um, sure, yeah. And um, I think you guys have mentioned it a few times on the podcast about ACEs, about adverse childhood experiences, and mm-hmm. how children of alcoholics are just, or addicts of any kind, are way more likely to have experienced many of those. Mm-hmm. And obviously that leads to all sorts of social, neurological, behavioral issues later in life. And it can, and physical, physical development. It can hinder mm-hmm. physical development. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, <clears throat> and looking at that list and realizing, oh yeah, I can answer yes to, you know, five, definitely, maybe more. <laughs> um, so therefore you're classified as trauma and there are these two types of trauma which are complex and um, I can't remember the name of the other one. The complex is where it's repeated trauma. So you experience it over and over again. And the other is developmental so that it's in the early years. So it affects your development. And I could really see that those traumatizations had had an effect on myself and the way that I lived in the world. And in speaking to other children of addicts and researching it, those are quite archetypal or stereotypical effects. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, on, on the surface level, there's de- depression and loneliness and um, themselves being much more likely to fall foul to addiction, but also self, very self-critical, high level of self-criticism, mm-hmm. feeling like you can't share your voice, you can't speak up, you're not going to be heard not trusting people um, or others, being at times self-destructively self-reliant and all these sort of things that really rang true and familiar. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But mainly because those things are all mainly because in your closest system of belonging, you you go to the place to find safety and you don't, you find danger. You go to the place mm-hmm. to find compassion and you find disconnection. <laughs> so, so those things that are taught when you're, yeah, contempt many times <clears throat> in those very early years, what those words mean, they're completely, completely screwed up in your system. You have no idea what those things mean and they mean the opposite to what they're meant to mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the complexity of it was, was, interesting and also speaking to other people hearing them having the same experiences of those things was also for the first time me going ah so you know there's there are these other people because that's the other (laughs) thing is it's this silent thing isn't it I think every single child of an addict will say that there is a complicity of silence it doesn't matter how much of an obvious addict they are um, or how, how, yeah, how obvious it is to anyone else. There's this complicity of not saying it or not talking yeah. about it or not acknowledging it to anyone, and you've just kind of got to get on with it. And again, that's yeah. why it's dangerous that there aren't these boundaries. There aren't these. There is this spectrum, um, and that's how it. That's how it works because it's all all right until it's not all right. 
Exactly. And you don't say anything because it's kind of okay and everything's all right. And then suddenly, well, it's, not, it's not okay anymore. Suddenly, <laughs> it's okay. You know, I, I think, and, and for me, that was when we moved from London to Bath. My mum and I moved from London to Bath. Oh, and it's a wonderful zoo in Bath. In oh, Bath? Love a zoo? Bath. A zoo, yeah. It's it's the the Lord Lord Bath the, the Lord Bath. Oh, Longleat, yeah. Longleat, Longleat. Well, my favorite telly is the Longleat uh, uh, Zoo Show. Zoo show. That's it's nice. a zoo show. I used to watch it every morning after practice. And you know the guy Lord Bath who lives in Longleat has like seven or eight wives or something. As you should, if you're going to have you that should, much money, you, you should live, provide. Have your own zoo or, and. <laughs> And, Multiple you know, wives. Yeah. Oh if you can afford it, and you know, those women need looking after as well. Yeah, that's why he's got all those tigers. Um, yeah. Anglican or Mormon? To, I don't know. The, I don't know. No? It's just you have the money. You should provide. That's all. <laughs> all right, back to addiction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so we moved to Bath, and which was near my mum's sister. And I mean, it'd been, I think it'd been quite bad in London, but when you're that, I was seven when we moved to Bath um, and you don't really know any different. So you kind of think it's okay. And then we moved to Bath and we lived with my aunt for a while and my cousins. And I was very aware that this is a very different living situation (laughs) than I had. And then Mm -hmm. I attended, I got, I got into a private school. So I was, um, I was surrounded by lots of kids who seemed like parents very normal. And um, yes, it was different. And mm-hmm. then my dad moved from Oxford to Bath. So he was nearby. And that meant that I had a kind of get out. So I would come home from school at say four o'clock in the afternoon. My mum would often be asleep. And I'd have mm-hmm. to go to the co-op and buy my own dinner and make my dinner and yeah, um, yeah, things yeah. like that. And after a while, and I would call my dad and he would come pick me up and I could go and stay there. And that recognition that there was another space that where I didn't have to cook my own dinner and someone mm-hmm. else washed my clothes and did those sort of things meant that it became more difficult to enjoy the space that wasn't okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Very familiar story. Yeah, so I'm very lucky she moved to Bath and I'm very lucky that my dad moved as well because I feel like that's one of the main contributing. When they look at um, how being the child of an addict affects adults, One of there are, there are a few major contributing factors. One is that we're born with a certain amount of resilience or hypersensitivity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're born with a bit more resilience, then you've got your foot in the door a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the next is if you have a stable adult in your life that's able yeah. to provide some kind of support mm-hmm. alongside class and education and support systems that are available to you outside of your family system. But those two are the main things. And I feel like I had those. So I had that ability to say, this isn't okay. And I prefer mm-hmm. this. And, um, and I had somewhere to go. So at 12, I sort of went, yeah, I think I'll go and live it was only across the park, you know, you could walk there in 10 yeah. minutes, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I had always kind of wondered why my, um, why my father had um, misshapen ears and they always sort of seemed a bit weird to me. I never kind of really asked about it. And I was in the car with him last, 
last month in Detroit. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I was, I just, they, I would just go to school by myself and, you know, find food wherever I could. And I didn't have a cap and my ears got frostbit and they, it, the pieces of them broke off. It's like, what, what, what was grandma at work? No, she was just always asleep. <laughs> and I said, right. Yeah. And she, <laughs> she was a, you know, full blown alcoholic yeah. crawling to the door to, um, my mother tells me this story all the time. I don't know. I, I don't know how this works. She would crawl to the door to open it up so that men could come in to have sex with her. Oh, and I was like, oh, oh, so sad. I feel like that's a saying, but like a terrible one. A, a what? Like a saying, not a reality, but a terrible one. A saying? Do people say that? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe child about it have their own sayings. <laughs> every every home has their own saying. This is a yeah. kind of thing they say in the family. <laughs> but uh. But it's like, you know, I could tell you, you know, I could tell you 10, different, 10 more different examples of the same kind of situation of just neglect, you know, and not having a good enough mom has this repercussion across mm-hmm. generations. And then you have a child who's kind of got one foot in either, as you said, one foot in the door, one foot out, and is able to make a step towards um, uh, a responsible adulthood. Mm. which is kind of where, where you are and probably um, you're probably a, uh, a bit stronger and a bit further ahead than Harmony and I. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, I don't know about that. We see your flag. <laughs> and we're, we're chasing it. We're following up the hill that. after you. you know, but, I, um, do, I do know. And I don't know what your guys' experience was of this is, but I do know that from even though I started going out and drinking from quite a young age and too much and um, did that for too long, there was never any question in my mind that I would end up an addict. I just knew I did not yeah, have yeah. that in me. And I think, like you were saying, that um, uh, that your parents had this capacity for drugs and alcohol. And my mum has that. She has that capacity. And you just think, God, how have you consumed all that I don't have that <laughs> I you will you know no <laughs> oh. no I will be sick before you know I'll get really sick before I can that's oh. helpful yeah Which I is have that really, too. that's yeah. really it's helpful really helpful that. yeah because it actually is a boundary that you don't personally yeah. have in your personality <laughs> but if you, can, if you can get sick it's like oh I should stop yeah. then yeah. Well, you kind yeah, of have I'm to the same. normally. I'm. Yeah. I'm a. I vomit very easily. But yeah. you can take but a I bunch will, more. Yeah. <laughs> keep going afterwards. Also, I would never keep going afterwards. <laughs> it's quite funny though. Uh, what drugs you have a capacity for and <laughs> what you don't. So Harmony and I have no capacity for psychedelics. Psychedelics yeah, turn us into uh, into terrified little children. Mm. Whereas. Uh, they make me vomit. Yeah, and vomit, <laughs> panic. And so I always assumed I was a lightweight because all I had took were psychedelics growing up. And I was like, I, I was, you know, really close to the becoming one of those schizophrenic young men, you know, because, yeah. because like, it's too much. Um, whereas I didn't discover until I was, like, 40 that I could 
drink as much as I wanted and not, and then like after 30 minutes, be stone cold sober. I feel like, like, feel like, you know, I think you are. No, I was in Provence in the South of France. And I was like, I, I was, I was, I've told the story in the podcast before, but I was in the death throes of my marriage and I was ready to move on. And I just said, fuck it. And I never said fuck it before. I'd never, never allowed myself to say fuck it. Mm. And so just yeah, you weren't a big drinker growing up. Never. No. Because I knew that my really? parents were alcoholics. I was. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> you were a serious drinker from the age of 12. And ten. Ten. Maybe not serious at 10, but definitely. Like a fucking <laughs> bottle of vodka is serious. That's, yeah. age oh, that's quite serious. <laughs> but like 10 in the morning, like all night, and I would just keep drinking, keep drinking, and like without like 30 minutes later like i'm just i'm sober again okay what do i do i have to keep drinking you need to get into the hard stuff yeah (laughs) drinking wine in france is just like drinking water it's It's not just drinking yeah it's not really drinking (laughs) you gotta start getting into like some gin you have a a vast capacity for alcohol but then you you're 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 like cheesing it now you're saying like no 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 i i I throw up i i do if i drink too much but you can drink drink a lot under the table Uh, yeah i can actually yeah i mean but yeah, that's because my liver's conditioned. Conditioned. <laughs> it's just seven years. It's back on form. But, but what isn't conditioned is your self-critic and your inner critic. Like that's not conditioned no. at all, is it? No, that's yeah. it. That comes out in full force. That's every day, every morning. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was thinking about that. Even I with all the it. personal development, <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> But that's the thing. Like that's what kind of yeah. at the heart of our conversation, Lucinda, is that all all three of us pursued personal development. And I'd like to hear more about what what you and your your dad got up to, uh, which sounds fascinating. Um, a little culty, but um, yes, we all sort of pursued these cults out of kind of. I think because we we made the choice to pursue cults because Al-Anon, you know, wasn't wasn't available to us you know um and i think we found adult children of alcoholics in our ashtanga community mm-hmm. and that was our succor you know our mm-hmm. community our sangha became a, a way for all of us to kind of um redress our our, our trauma histories would you agree with that assessment is that unfair um <clears throat> yeah i definitely um oh i don't know actually because i feel like i was looking for something from a very young age I feel like and and I I said this a little in my bio about my dad um my dad had a strong meditation practice as long as I can Mm -hmm. remember and was always talking about esoteric things and um having those kind of conversations so it was always in my background Um, yeah he was like he reminds me of like this like hippie of the 60s like into transcendental meditation and like yeah and he these, was. like interesting like kind of you know i don't know like yeah you're saying, he, was, he was mystical experiences and stuff yeah he was like a real control freak hippie because he, <laughs> he, he did acid once and it was the most awful traumatizing experience of right. his life and then his yeah. first wife was a heroin addict 
Oh, wow. <clears throat> she died um, and he had to go and get her out, of, get her body out of wherever she died from. And she was my mum's best friend. Oh, my so, gosh. Um, Wow. So he, delicious. yeah, right. <laughs> that explains a lot. Just like, wow. Um, yeah. And he, so he was always, and he was quite. He's very intelligent, very academic, and so he always had this. Um, he was a hippie, but he wasn't that kind of loose. Yeah, with yeah. It, I don't yeah. think. Um, he was so a hippie like my mom's a hippie. It was very, <laughs> yeah. He was very determined and very. You know, he worked really hard at his meditation yeah. practice, and it was a really, yeah. um, it still is very long, traumatic and wonderful thing. But he, wow. he, I feel like he was a hippie, but not in that very free love. Yeah, not in the drugs, drugs way. Drugs way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the rest of everyone else around him was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but in, um, I can see it. I can see that. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can you can sort of you can put your um, you you can create a kind of uh, um, category of hippiedom by which beetle you like the most, right? And that's <laughs> that's where you land. Yeah, the yeah. hardcore heroin addicts can stay with John Lennon. With John, yeah. You know, the kind of meditators go with George. Yeah, you know, yeah. The kind of dopey, you know, smokers go with. Go, go, go with, with Paul. Paul. Yeah. yeah. With Ringo. <laughs> Ringo, you're just wearing the clothes. <laughs> so your dad was with George. Oh, you, like... <laughs> you started joining him. I, yeah, I think. I was told my whole life by my whole family how exactly like my dad I was, oh, which wow. I took as a great compliment because I thought at least I'm not like my mum. Right, and, you know, like he was this kind of savior. Um, yeah. It was not meant as a compliment. I <laughs> 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 no, see now. I nice. see now that it was well. My mother, I knew it wasn't a compliment, but my mother's uh. family as well used it. Quite freely oh, in the same way. Oh, oh, funny. oh man. So, You're like, yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing great. So like, hit me again. Uh, oh. But uh, oh. so I kind of felt very akin to him, and like we had the same ideas about things and um, the same kind of thought processes and stuff which happened naturally I think I don't feel like he pushed it on me at all um I just sort of gravitated towards it and I but at the same time he's my dad so I didn't really want to do what he was doing you know I wasn't right and I was quite lost I think I was um after school was quite lost and just uh you know that 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 self-criticism thing that we're talking about for me and for lots of uh, children addicts, it works to push them to a high level of achievement. And I yeah. know, you know, yourself, Harmony, have said how oh, that's worked for you. And for me, it didn't <laughs> worked really work. Yeah. It worked until it doesn't. Right? Until it doesn't. It didn't, it really stagnated me. Like I really, yeah. um, I felt it didn't matter how well I achieved at something. It didn't really push me yeah. in a direction or to do more of that thing I just kind of undermined it very quickly after I'd achieved it and mm -hmm. 
And so I felt after school, sort of all my friends went to university and I went, I think I took a gap year and then I went for a term and dropped out and felt really bad about mm. that and was mm-hmm. back at home and I didn't know what to do. And my dad was always really supportive about, you know, you'll work it out. Let's just work it out, just try different things. So I did all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but one of them was I did a psychotherapy training and alongside that, I did a training in something called family systems or systemic constellations, which is yeah, systemic uh, constellations. Yeah, that's yeah, nice. which that's is a method of culty thing. But that's just the culty sounding things. It sounds is it, weird. Is it really family systems? Because that's really popular right now. So it's 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 yeah. family systems, and I was doing it. This is like twenty yeah. twenty three years ago or something. And right, before it was popular. <laughs> before it was popular, yeah. Before anyone really paid any money to do it. And, you know. This is, this yeah, is now the, they made a whole movie about it. Yeah, this exactly. The, this is the quote that was a red flag for me. Um, <laughs> use the tool to constellate spiritual entities and oh, ideas. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's, yeah, okay. That's, that's weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into that. So it's really, <clears throat> it is really fascinating in that, um, in the fam- so if we start in the family situation, the way it works is a group of people come together um, and now amongst them will be some issue holders who have come specifically to talk about something in their life that's not working out. And the constellator who's holding the circle will ask them to pick a few people from the group to represent members of their family and place them in space in relation to each other. Now they have no knowledge of each other. They've never met each other before, no knowledge of the system. And somehow, <clears throat> when you do that and you place people in this constellation, mm-hmm. they begin to experience feelings, words, thoughts, actions that are not their own. And no. I have never seen someone not experience it. I've never seen it not work on even the most kind of hardened, rigid, British, stiff upper lip person. I've never seen them unaffected by it. And. No. <clears throat> You then work to put the system in a shape that serves to heal it. And that Mm. shape is usually based on an archetypal structure of the family being placed in order, where people's roles and positions are honoured and respected. Mm. And that's Mm. where I think... So it came from a Gestalt therapist who'd done a lot of Gestalt. And he also then spent a lot of time in Africa with um, witch doctors and um, tribal people and the work that they do with their ancestors and a lot of the um, you know they'll line up they'll line up images of their ancestral ancestral line and pay respect to it and all of this so it's all quite you know it's quite weirdly so fascinating yeah and it's incredibly healing I think if you're in the right space I think it's not it's not a therapeutic process it's much more I think for people who've sort of gone through that therapeutic process and are still kind of stuck and still not being mm. able to hold or feel free in their ability to love their family or themselves. Mm. And it's, it's a really, um, it's deeply moving and, and deeply beautiful. And I've seen all sorts of really traumatic things played out and, and worked and healed and done really wonderful things. So we'd both done this. My dad had done it and I'd trained in it. And he was working, (coughs) excuse me, as an organizational consultant and looking at brand identity and organizational identity from a spiritual perspective. So Mm. looking at a company's um, 
the, the divine energy behind a company that was trying to incarnate in the world. Right. Mm. That's amazing. And, yeah. So it was really amazing. And it's a really, it's a beautiful framework. It's a really, um, it's a beautiful way of looking at the world that everything has this divine intention yeah. behind it that's trying to bring in some unique value to the world that's going to make it better. Um, that's so beautiful. Wow. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And he was doing it for individuals as a kind of coaching tool, yeah. and he was also doing yeah. it for organizations. And we were using the constellation process to look at what might be blocking that divine force coming through. What is it that's standing in the way? And, oh, that's um, phenomenal. Yeah, and it's it. it's really oh, you should. It's so great. He's so good at it, and it's um, it's such a really. It's a lovely gift to have to be given someone to show you, hey, look, this is you at your full divine potential. There you go. This is what you do in the world. Can you That's do it? That's incredible. More? Is he still doing this? Is this what he is, like his work or is he um, doing he, something else now? So he worked at it for so long. He's worked his whole life, you know, mm -hmm. at this. And um, he's now, what is he doing now? He is writing some research paper, and I, I'm not entirely sure what it's on, but it is based in that same process. But he works a lot with an organization called Ecoside, which are trying to put into place a law that makes it a crime to commit um, detriment to the environment, severe detriment to the environment. And well, they're doing... going to put most of our population. In prison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. Um, but they're doing really good, and they're using that process quite a bit to look at how the decisions they make and what the best ways forward and stuff. And they're doing really well. It's really taking cool. taking a bit of um, taking flight. It's, it's fantastic because I I could I can just imagining I could just see an episode of Succession where this concept was brought. <laughs> Into the room by Roman Roy with yeah. enormous contempt, and then Kendall is just sitting there like, "What the fuck is going on right now?" And yet, these are the people that that are in the most need, dire need of, of healing by Spiritual something healing. that yeah. could allow them to respect uh, their ancestors, their ancestors, and their family. Like, yeah. just, can you imagine what Logan oh. would say? <laughs> Fuck off! You know? <laughs> yeah. oh. And they need it. They need it so badly because they because that's part of what happens. You just start to have so much contempt for your family, yeah. and so much suspicion yeah. and so much cynicism mm. that you can't barely get on in the world because you mm. just you just carry this intense um, inability to to be to grapple with with feelings yeah and, and, and that that system it doesn't doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter mm. how rich you are how successful anything that system of origin you are always going to try to belong to it in whatever mm. way you can you are going to try to belong to it even if it's fulfilling the role of not belonging mm. and right. it's you're just you can't help it and it's like that <laughs> That inner critic voice that doesn't shut up. You just learn how mm -hmm. to move in spite of it. Whereas um, when you can see the system for what it is and the roles that have been played and where everyone actually really wants to be in that system rather than where they've been placed by trauma, by um, mm -hmm. whatever's happened, 
then it's there is incredibly healing and you do it does affect the way you carry them in your heart and um the way you you can feel love for them um and for other people and so on yeah yeah. Oh, other people too. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes, occasionally, huh. you know. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> they impress I'll, you enough. <laughs> I'll put a pin in that. Uh, so your dad and you are doing some of this, like family yeah. systems work. How on earth did you like get immersed into this Ashtanga Yoga <laughs> community <laughs> in uh, air quotes? Yeah, community. Dysfunctional family could do a good constellation with the Ashtanga family community, can you? Right, that would be good. That would be really good. It would be super good. Um, I was doing so. I think I said I I I left university and I was and my life felt very chaotic and um, I didn't know what I was doing and I felt really confused and I was doing this bit of work with my dad, which was great, but I didn't really feel like like it was going somewhere for me. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, at 28, I went back to university and I loved it. Like, I loved being a mature student. It was great. But I had to, I imposed this structure on myself because I'd never in my life, I didn't know how to self-discipline. I just did not have that skill at all. And I knew the only way that this was going to be worth my time was if I learned that. And so I imposed mm-hmm. this really strict structure on myself. <clears throat> and I, you know, I didn't miss one single lecture. I didn't miss one single class. I did everything. I did all the reading. I was the really annoying mature student at the front of every lecture. Like, <laughs> first time in my life. It was amazing. Um, and during that time, I also started running and doing a lot of exercise. And it's like I was just finding all these ways to impose structure in my life mm-hmm. and feel like I could organize the chaos in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and I did do that. And I did it um, quite successfully. And I was really, really proud of myself for a short time before I <laughs> undermined it um, yeah. very quickly. But um, at, towards the end of that, I started getting injured from a lot of running. And I thought, oh, you know, I should do some yoga. I know it's meant to be good for stretching. But I had a really adverse reaction to it. I felt like my impression was very love and light and the kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, hippified side of it that I had quite a strong reaction against Mm -hmm. and didn't appeal to me so I was doing it begrudgingly and my only criteria when looking for a yoga class was that it was at six or seven in the morning Um, like (laughs) that was it I was like I'm going to and Bath isn't that big there aren't that many yoga classes and I found two classes that were at six or seven in the morning I didn't know they were both Ashtanga, but they were. And I looked <laughs> the at them. Kind of yoga. <laughs> the only people who get up at that time to do yoga. <laughs> and I looked at one website and I didn't like the picture of the people on that one. So I went to the other <laughs> one. <laughs> and, and it was so weird because I went to this Mysore class and um, – I think it was in the sports centre, the one like the local sports centre, and it was quite busy. And I went and I got given my mat, and this lovely lady came and taught me this Surinamaskar A and Surinamaskar B, and I did them. And I was like, "Wow, this is really hard." And I quite mm-hmm. liked it because I thought at first I thought, "Oh, I don't want to give up one of my days running and doing to the gym right. to do yoga because I really, you know, I like sweating and all mm-hmm. of that business." And, yeah, <laughs> and that really appealed to me, and it really appealed to me that. I was given a structure as well. She's like, right, we are going to do yeah. this, this, and this. You're going to yeah. do it now. 
on your own, but there's a group of people here. So I wasn't completely on my own. That was quite nice. Right. And, um, and I had my own mat and I was working on my own. I'm an only child, so I like to do things on my own. I'm not a very yeah. team player. Um, <laughs> and, and then afterwards, she was like, okay, see you next week. So I went, okay. <laughs> so I went back next week and I, I couldn't go to the Thursday. So I went to the Friday. And the Friday was just the teacher in the room practicing on her own. And I would, she goes, okay, you do your sun salutations and then I'll help you as and when. And mm-hmm. so I would just practice next to her for the next six months and every four weeks or something. She moved me really slowly. I don't know if I was really, really bad at it, but she like gave me like one pose every month, even through yeah. standing and stuff. Um, you, you were doing it once a week, is that right? I was doing it once a week, but I was, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you That's know, I was right. a, applying my structure to it and my discipline and being very dedicated yeah. and I learned everything. And I just gradually, I was like, oh, I've been doing it once a week. I'll go twice a week. And um, and then before I knew it, I was doing it six times a week. And, you know, my life was over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I mean, when I yeah. met you, I met you in um, Bristol. Bristol. Yeah. Back in oh, 2016. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And... How long had you been practicing since then? And where had your journey taken so, you? I'd been practicing since 2012. Yeah. So, yeah, and so four years. I felt like it was pretty early on. Eh? Yeah, yeah, it felt early on to me. Um, yeah. And I think, so I'd been practicing with um, Alice in Bath. And mm-hmm. I really, like, it took me a long time to know that I was practicing Ashtanga Yoga. And yeah. weirdly, before I took this class, about six months before, my dad's girlfriend at the time had shown me a video of Kino practicing. Right. And I just looked at it and went, I am never doing that. What the hell is yeah. that? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously a year in, someone gave me a Kino McGregor book and I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, that's that lady I saw doing that crazy stuff. <laughs> um, and after, after two years of practicing, the teacher that I was with was running a teacher training. And I uh-huh. said to her, look, I really, really don't want to teach but I really would like to know more and I'd like to do some more study. And she's like, okay, so come and come and do it. But it turned out there were only two of us on the training and she was running it as an apprenticeship. Right. So we basically ended up teaching her classes for a year. Right. Um, <laughs> this is pretty much what it was. And uh, I was well aware that I was not in any way ready or qualified to be doing that. Em- embrace the pyramid scheme. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, and I got to the end of it and I thought oh I don't didn't really didn't really scratch the itch you know and I wanted to go and find out some more so I did um, I went to Miami and did Tim and Kino's intensive there and that was that was amazing I mean it was really great it was so intense and um, a real kind of it felt like a baptism of fire it felt you know this is this is what it's about and this is where I want to go and how I want to how I want to proceed and I came back and while I was away we'd moved to Bristol Um, so I then started I was asked to assist and teach there a bit and I stayed there for two years and then we moved back to Bath yeah and um yeah and I was I was teaching a little bit in Bath by then again so we moved back here and I started teaching and I still sort of feel, I still feel like I'm not really ready to be teaching. 
really. So I still feel like um, I have that slight imposter syndrome. And like the more I learn, I'm that person who's the more I learn, the less I feel I know. And it's that experience of constantly just um, this huge thing that you're dealing with and working with. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. I think a, a a lot of us kind of fell into Ashtangiyo because it was there, mm. you know. It was and it was it was this. It worked on us. Um, it did something for us. And as you said, like we're looking for a very particular kind of experience that mm. was um, uh, structured, structured, uh, not cerebral but physical. We could get we could get into our body. Um, seemed authentic. Seemed authentic. You know, we're, we're um, deeply critical so we could kind of apply this um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, what is it when you try and make a perfectionist attitude mm. towards our, our own body mm. and we could just examine every single bit of ourselves that was wrong, we could fix it, you know, try and fix it. And, <laughs> but it, you know, it might, you know, it, but it was also just there and it could very well have been Taekwondo or, you know, 40 years ago, it might've been aerobics. And I'm, I'm, I, I want to try and get back to the heart of what is it about our mentality that we then applied to, to Ashtanga yoga? What is that viewpoint? And, and what do you mean? We, the three of us. Oh, like yeah. as, as children think, of alcoholics. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think for me, it felt safe. Like mm. I think that was a huge thing that I could, someone could show me that the map, they could show me the poses. They could tell me that it was from this lineage over here in India, and this is where it's from. And there's a big guy, and yeah. he's in charge. And, yeah, uh, you know, I was like, oh, okay, totally. that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt too. But he's still okay, alive, good. and he's in charge. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going there. I totally understand that. I completely, and I had the same thought. But what is it about us that has that thought? Like, what is it that that's lacking, isn't it? It's that's yeah. what's lacking in life. And, and I think you said it previously. Yeah, no it's a way out, yeah, it's a way out of the chaos. You've lived in this life yeah. where there's no boundary. Yeah. And there's, there's no one. And, and also for me, certainly my mother's story had always been my story. Like my mother's addiction or her sobriety or whatever it was, it doesn't matter yeah. if an addict is sober, they are still the center of the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and for so. me, it was the first time that, and, and also on top of that, you have the added shame and guilt of actually speaking your own story. So, mm-hmm. so you have these two things that are stopping you from ever being the center of your thought or experience. And you were given a mat and it has boundaries. And those are your boundaries. And it's about mm. you, obviously, ideally. It has boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's about you, but you don't have to talk about it to anyone. Yeah. You can get on your mat and you can look inside yourself and you can work yeah. things out for yourself, which is really nice because we like to be self-reliant. And yeah. yet there is someone there to, to move against and to talk with and to reflect if you need it. And hopefully they are a stable, sound <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, uh, valuable presence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes. and I think that creates, you know, we seek out that stability and that system that we lacked. And mm-hmm. Ashtanga, unlike other yogas, has that so strongly in place mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. start. Um, you know, I really, yeah. I really like to be told what to do. 
It relieves yeah. a whole lot of pressure from me. My husband hates it, absolutely yeah. hates it. Whereas I'm just like, yeah, please, someone tell me <laughs> when to get up, when to eat, <laughs> when yeah. to do this, when to do that. And, um, and it's easier. And the, the nice thing is because I've been imposing that structure on myself for mm. the past five years or something, then allowing it to be given from elsewhere was really nice. It felt yeah. like a real relief. Um, yeah. But also, Russell, I think I think it appeals to our more negative qualities too, like you said, because it is a perfect yeah. opportunity to carry a lot of shame and guilt and self-criticize and self-flagellate yeah, and yeah. get rid of all of those kind of... And you can only do that for so long, I think, before you wind up a bit broken. Yeah, and there's, I mean, and if you don't have that loving, compassionate presence of a teacher, I mean, and your teacher is someone who's like, you know, do it again that wasn't right or you know incorrect method or whatever like yeah. a little bit more critical it reinforces a lot of yeah. negative critical patterns it creates a codependent yeah. relationship with that teacher absolutely yeah. or, or, or they they overstep their boundary and aren't aren't stable and aren't um able to provide support actually mm -hmm. for for whatever reason and yeah. um and you can get into a you know, for me, it's very easy to become the stable, superior person right. in a relationship. That yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm used to that. Like that's that's exactly. good. I'm safe. I'm here. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. But soon that doesn't that doesn't work either because you don't want that. You want your yeah. teacher to be someone like you say who is guiding you in a very clean, loving, kind way. Mm. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. Like just reflecting on some of this, um, you know, I was asked when I was teaching this last weekend about sort of, you know, Mysore and, and Patabi Joyce, and people are still very curious about mm. this situation. And, and it's, it's just like everything you're saying, and just kind of reflecting on on this, you know, and I had said, like, you know, anyone in the room, in my opinion, knew what was going on, that he was sort of, you know, touching women in ways that are now deemed inappropriate. At that time, it didn't seem so inappropriate. It was cool. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, and so it's not like anybody's to blame for mm. not saying something or not stepping up. It just never occurred to us that it was inappropriate. And then from our discussion, just sort of thinking about this, you know, I mean, the room is full of children of <laughs> alcoholics. Every last yeah. And like most of us have very, very um, undefined boundaries. That's right. Right? Yeah. Like, you're going to grab my butt? That's okay. Yeah. If I, if I saw, when I saw Patabi Joyce grab someone's crotch, which I saw, I was like, oh, that's, okay, that's cool. Okay, that's happening now. Yeah. Right? Like, Disassociated, yeah. I'm going back to my practice. Like, I think, the, honestly, the room is majorita majoritively? Sure. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> full of you know children of alcoholics mm. like who grew up in environments that were chaotic and your unpredictable is to watch and stay alive 
Yeah. And so if you see something happening, you're not like, oh, I should stand up and say something. You're like, oh, no. That's not how you survive in that environment. (laughs) I'm going to survive. I'm just going to watch. Okay. That seems seems weird. You don't confront the patriarch. No one's dying. It's also belonging. You want to belong. And if no one else, and if your elders aren't saying anything, your senior students aren't saying anything. Then, yeah. um, then of course, because we want to belong, and you found this thing that is so precious and that you love. And and I always mm. thought when it when it all came out, um, I thought how devastating because I'd had so many people say, you know, it was like a grandfather or a father to me. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, God, if someone said that about my grandfather, if that came out, then of course I'm not suddenly going to go, oh yeah, sure, of course he was doing all that. I'm really sorry. That's terrible. I'd just hmm. fall apart and you wouldn't believe right. it. You'd defend him and you'd want it not to be true. Um, even if you saw it happening, even, that's yeah, the thing. Absolutely. Even if you saw it happening, you yeah. it me. never went in. Yeah. Because it just, I mean, like, I think it was just like a, I think we just weren't equipped. No. And I think also because of the family history that I'm going to say 90% of the people in that room come Mm. from or came from at the time. And at that time, we're talking about 200 people. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's different now, right? It's quite different now. It's it's serious punks. Yeah. At Mm. that time, it was was addicts, recovering addicts, and children of of addicts. Yeah. That's that's who was in that room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know it's funny because I think when I went to Mysore for the first time, I've only been twice, but part of me was kind of disappointed because I think I thought that I would find people who were more right. like me and more yeah. kind of, um, oh, yeah. and it really didn't feel like that now. It yeah. felt it's quite much... a, pr- a privileged space, you know. Yeah, it feels... it's quite. That's exactly yeah. right. It turned um, to that from a punk space to yeah. a privileged space, which is what do they call that in gentrification gentrification it's That's the, the word yes. it became gentrified yeah it's yeah. exactly what it did yeah it went from artists and punks and and uh and then it turned into a kind of middle class environment mm. with people enjoying a latte yes literally <laughs> literally literally yeah literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. so hard to like to explain i mean i feel like we were kind of at the tail end of that generation russell and i well 2003 i mean really, yeah you know. but like really because mm. in by 2007 like people had cell phones and wi-fi and laptop computers but yeah. when we first went there was no wi-fi there deck, was no smartphones there was no cards That's yeah what they had. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. There was no almond milk. There was no chocolate. Yeah. There was nothing. You had a cold nothing. bath. And you walked on the snow. I mean, I remember bringing, like, I, I tell people this, I, I emptied a bunch of, like, craft dinner packages into yeah. Ziploc bags and brought noodles with me. Because you couldn't even get noodles. You could Why only get Indian food. on earth yeah. would you do that? You could Indian food. No, you could get food. Oh, no. Get a fucking dosa and I fucking mean, eat the fucking dosa. I had a about dosas last night. Jesus. I just remembered. After three months, you're just like, I just want like, yeah. no, I want dinner. a fucking I just Italy want and a dosa. Food. I don't want comfort. I want a fucking... I do. I, don't, I get Indian tired food. of Indian food. I hate Indian food. Oh. I get so tired of it. Oh, I do. I, 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 anything, if it lasts very long 
That's the problem. <laughs> Too much I like it for a while. It's true. You're a chaos agent. I am. It's yeah. my comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I was thinking about that too, actually, about that, like that some of us have that chaos comfort zone and some of us, I, I used to think that was my comfort zone and then I was like, oh, actually feeling safe makes a lot more things possible for me <laughs> much more able to function if I feel safe and organized yeah. um yeah. but it doesn't come naturally so I have to really yeah. really work at it and still and it took a long time for me not to feel like chaos was what made something attractive mm-hmm. and yeah. that um mm-hmm. uh and I think yeah, some people don't feel really, safe in, yeah. in a way yeah exactly or like familiar it's familiar yeah. maybe not and safe, I think that's familiar yeah that's quite a common um uh result of for children of addicts is that they do confuse pleasure with pain yeah seek out seek out pleasure through painful experiences mm-hmm. one of the the most um, like inappropriate jokes that i i have in, yeah. in my back pocket is that um, <laughs> oh, great. i moved to new york uh, September 1st, 2001. And then a, a, a week later, the buildings fell down. And that's how I knew I was home. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, man. Welcome to New York. Yeah. Well, thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. This is clearly where I'm meant to be. Yeah. Chaos. Awesome. Chaos. Awesome. I I want to talk to you a bit about um and I, this is a this is a a point that I want Harmony to take back with her. I want her to learn this from you <laughs> about the the shadow side of Ashtanga Yoga for you. Um, the which I think is really a systemic failing that to do this properly, you have to get up at three in the morning, practice, teach find something to fucking do all day and then go to sleep at six and how that resulted for you in Addison's disease. And I wonder if not you can, quite, not, I quite. Wonder, no, not, not you Harmony, but her. And I want to, you can tell us about this and how this, it, like it doesn't work for us. Actually, I found that really, really interesting. I do want you to talk about this also because I also have very, um, I'm just going to say weak kidneys. I've yeah. had kidney infections like five times in my life, like serious, almost died from one. Um, yeah, it's really? not a strong space for me in my body. Because I <laughs> nearly died too from my kidney infection. Fucking yeah. sleep, ladies. Mm. Fucking get some yeah, sleep. Yeah, yeah. So tell us, mm. tell us what you learned about getting up at three in the yeah. morning for you. <laughs> what you learned is um, stop fucking doing stop that. Doing it. Well, I say that. I still get up at 4.30. <laughs> oh. I feel like that's like... I wake uh, up every morning at 3 a.m. and drink water and go back to sleep. You go back to sleep? Oh, you see, go if I back. wake up at 3, I can't get back to sleep. That's my problem. Go and then I'm just bed. like, oh, I just get up. You go have. to bed. Yeah. Stay asleep. That's I wake all. up at 3 and I go, I drink water and I go, it's not time to get up now. I drink a whole cup of water. A whole like, cup? That's amazing. Like six, 16 ounces. And then yeah. my stomach's really full. Heart. And then I'm, I'm like, you really can't good. get up and do anything. You have to lie here and part, wait to digest your water. You have to go to sleep. And then of, I go back to sleep. I need, to learn, I need to learn to do that. 
because I water. yeah I'll try the water because normally I have to get up to pee and then I'm like oh well I'm up now might as well pee then drink the water okay that's my routine okay I'm doing that women have a more difficult time sleeping than men yeah to my mom especially my mother has no problem sleeping yeah my mom has a good cure for that too <laughs> yeah. But I mean, well, I think a lot, especially like for me, I got up at like three in the morning for gosh, 12 years of my it's life. Just, so we yeah. have the case family has the kaffa hard. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You, you guys can sleep through Get, anything. Eat kaffa foods. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think it done, it did work for me for a little while. And I did mm. it for about, um, I don't know, five, six years. Mm-hmm. probably a bit more maybe i don't know um and and there's a little bit of adrenaline that comes from it and you know you feel kind sure. of empowered by it and you feel really strong because you did this thing in the morning before anyone else was even awake and look at me <laughs> aren't i great and i'm still smiling at the end of the day um and then the day has to end at 4 p.m <laughs> yes exactly my day would end at seven i would go to bed at seven <laughs> but then i had my son and yeah. um Actually, it worked mm-hmm. really well because he was he was breastfeeding all night, and by about two in the morning, after I'd been woken up seven times, I was like, I cannot lie here anymore, and I'd just get up and I'd go and practice oh and I'd gosh. come back to bed, mm-hmm. and I felt great. It was great. I was like, at least I'm not lying in bed, being you know tossing and turning and being clawed right. at every five seconds. So <laughs> I would say until I was until he was two, I that worked quite well and it was nice and it yeah. fitted my practice in and it meant that I felt strong physically and I was there for him still all the time when he needed me and um and it was good the more the problem was actually going back to work after nine months I found that teaching really draining mm-hmm. after yeah. doing that um yeah. and that was that was a struggle but then he I stopped breastfeeding when he was two and gradually his sleep got a little better but I think I was probably traumatized, sleep traumatized a bit because I would just wake up whenever he woke up, any yeah. movement, I'd be awake. Yeah. And I would continue to get up really early in practice before he got up um, and then teach. And then teaching sort of got more, um, more. I built up a few more classes. And then um, I think what happened? And then I was starting to get really tired. <laughs> I was starting yeah. to think this isn't working so well. Um, yeah, but I couldn't see another way. I couldn't. He wasn't that child that would sit there and play with toys while I, you know, did second series. He just it last two seconds. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, doing it before he was awake felt like good parenting. Like I'm not yeah. compromising my time with him for something mm-hmm. <clears throat> that is essentially a solipsistic practice. Right. So <laughs> I carried on doing it. <laughs> and having to do it quite early because I was teaching at six wow. in the morning. Um, and it was getting really bad. I was getting to the point where every night before I went to bed, I was getting really tearful. I just felt mm. really tired every day. Um, I felt very trapped. I didn't know how to resolve it. And I really hate that experience of feeling like you, there's, there's no answer. You can't, you can't do anything about it. And then... <laughs> Um, and then Tim Feldman, um, 
asked me to teach the online Mysore for Miami Life Center at European time. And for me, that was like, you know, it felt very good. And like, I really, really wanted to do it. I'd worked really hard, I felt, and um, practiced a long time. And it felt like, yeah, this is, this is why I've done this. This is what I'd really Mm -hmm. like to do. Um, But I remember saying to Duncan, I remember saying to my husband, I said, I really want to do it, but it just makes me cry every time I think about it. <laughs> I think I don't know how it's going to work. And so I thought, I've got to try. And I tried. And I kept feeling really terrible and kept mm-hmm. feeling um, really... I was fine when I was teaching. I was fine when I was practicing. It was the rest of the day. Just constant yeah. tiredness and... Yeah. And emotional, very emotional every evening before I had to go to bed. And I went to the doctors and just said, look, I, I don't know much about anything to do with kidneys um, on a serious level, but I know that I have had past problems with my kidneys and um, I just like them checked. So they, did th- they do this test. It's a cortisol test and they do it at 9 a.m. in the morning because it's meant to be within a few hours of when you wake up and it what? checks your cortisol levels. And yeah. they do it three times, and two of the times that they did mine, they were very high, and the other yeah. time it it was kind of just below average. Mm. And the two times they did it was very high was when I'd got up at three or whatever and practiced, and then yeah, and then mm-hmm. gone and taught. So they then send you for uh, this test that tests for Addison's disease. Now I just I knew I didn't have it. I knew I was looking at it, I said, I know that the reason this is happening is because of me getting up early and doing this thing right. that just isn't working. Um, yeah. it's lucky I knew that because I had to wait eleven months or something for the test oh my for my fatal my fatal yeah, kidney NHS. disease. NHS will be in the <laughs> Um, so it took me another couple of months but I did finally I just said I I said to my dad I think and I said to Duncan I said I I can't I can't Mm -hmm. do both I don't know what to do I have to just stop so I spoke to Tim and being Tim he was really wonderful and supportive and kind and understanding and it hadn't really taken off the online Mysore anyway I think it was at a time when you know most people were heading back to practicing in person and all they'd already found their online community so right. it was a bit of a strange time to do it anyway and uh and it was re- it was really hard it was really hard to give up because I I already right. had this internal dialogue of being a dropout from university right. and, you know being a loser and it felt like that was um that was very high in my mind at the time but I did stop and I started just teaching once a week and practicing still before Gabriel gets up. So I still get up at, I get up at half past four and that gives me a really nice space, which I feel is manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I go to bed at nine. doesn't feel too much of a compromise most nights. Yeah. Although yeah. I say that and then this year it's, that sort of routine has all been shaken up by various things and I've had to learn to be okay with that and that's really hard for me <laughs> you know practicing later and uh, adapting yeah. around all sorts of different things that is definitely hard for me and it's definitely hard for me when I don't manage to do my full practice or it's not good for me to do my full practice I would much mm-hmm. rather do it, <laughs> than Counsel, not do it. I, I'd like to to give young teachers especially who are 
um, struggling with the the self with the the self loathing for for failing at being a Meister <laughs> yes. teacher, and I have um, I have retired as a Meister teacher um, myself. Is that the 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 model the archetype of the Meister teacher that we're all aspire to is the the pensioner who owns his own home, <laughs> teaches in the basement of that home for, um, you know, for people that come to him and pay him, you know, $400 a month each. <laughs> yes. That's the archetype. And so if, if you, if your life situation doesn't match that, then you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Because the, the, if you don't own your home and you're renting your place for a thousand, twelve hundred quid, and you 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 need to teach eighteen times a day, and you're exhausted and tired, and you have to practice to go back and and make sure that you get your your fifth Dan belt, you know, <laughs> back in Mysore, and then of course you need ten thousand yeah. dollars to pay for that training. Then the whole thing is going to death spiral for yeah. you and your energy levels. And it's it's like the same thing with like being an artist. If you're not the fifth son of of Lord Bath, don't be an artist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I I think I I was lucky to sort of know that from the beginning, having parents who'd worked very hard at um non-fruitful financially fruitful <laughs> <laughs> um, occupations and i, I know like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes um and i never you're absolutely right Russell. it's just to make money out of it and especially where i live which is saturated with all sorts of yoga and mostly kind of very comfortable yoga um mm. it's a really hard sell and it's not one that i wanted to make and I'm not very good at that. I'm not not very good at that. I really love I love being in the Mysore room with people. And now I do it every Friday and it's a fundraiser class, so all the all the money goes to charity each week. And that gives me a freedom from it, of attachment from it as well, and makes me feel a bit more relaxed about it. But mm. I do think that um, you know, it is it is so easy to fall into that idea of this is how it has to be. And right there's like like i've said there's safety in that and there's safety in that decision being made for you and for me allowing myself to make decisions that go against that is really important and also really hard you know it's like that thing it's still there that voice is still there i'm not sure that it ever won't be there but um but i do it in spite of it rather Mm -hmm. than you know yeah me keep yeah it's easier yeah I think it's really I think it's important though right to I mean you got those physical signs those physical feedback that it wasn't working for you anymore and I think you know as women age especially Mm. I can only speak from a woman's perspective but you know and you have children and other responsibilities in your life I mean it's just, it's very different time than when you're like in your twenties or your, you know, even thirties and, and, you know, you're single, you have no other responsibilities. Your body hasn't gone through those, those changes Mm. of like, you know, giving birth and then you're caring for a young one and all of the different things. And then later on you're going through like major hormonal changes and shifts and, and it's like a whole, I mean, it's like reverse puberty. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, your energy levels are going to be different. Your capacity is going to be different. And that's just life. Like you're just going to yeah. have to deal with it. You just have right? to do the same. Yeah. The same yeah. as when you're pregnant and you just have to deal with it. Like yeah. your body isn't the same. And interestingly, giving it up is not a problem. It's the yeah. fear of giving it up. That's the problem. Oh, that's like, fascinating. Yeah. So much like before I got pregnant, I was like, Oh my God, you know, I won't be able to practice. And the second I was pregnant, I was like, Oh, this is great. I don't have to do, I can do what I want. And like I yeah. had knee injuries for two years. And at yeah. first I was like, Oh my God, yeah. I won't ever do kind of asana again. Yeah. And now I'm like, this is amazing. I don't have, yeah. to, I don't have to do lotus. Don't I don't have to do that. So now I've got this free yeah. card. Um, but you're like one of those amazing women that can do Krandavasana like in a Bakasana position. <laughs> yeah, but I find that easier. I'm sure that's, that's easier. You say it's harder. I'm like, no. <laughs> I think it's harder. I think it's easier. Um, but uh, it's to say the same that having like enormous physical uh, deformities has been such a blessing. <laughs> yes. You know that I that I when I go into my yoga room, I'm no longer just filled with fear mm. and terror like i just go in there and muck about and it's nice <laughs> and it's and i leave when yeah. harmony says i have to make dinner and it's like okay. <laughs> i was like not like make breakfast no, no dinner no no dinner and it's it's really nice. Oh, nice and i don't you know being retired is amazing <laughs> <laughs> but it is i'd really like to retire i kind of have retired <laughs> No, I have a job, you know, but like I don't, I don't, I'm not a professional yoga teacher who's yeah. maintaining a standard. And that's and it too, isn't it? As you're teaching, you feel you need to maintain a standard, I think, yeah. because you feel yeah. you need to be there, be able to keep up and provide in more information for your students and more support. And your practice is yeah. kind of part of that. Um, yeah. But um, I definitely feel like that's true that like I've had torn meniscus in both knees and it's been I think two years they are getting kind of better but I I, I just feel like it's much nicer I don't I'm much nicer to myself than than I used to be and yeah. um I I do feel like and the kidneys actually interestingly the kidneys are related to fear um and I feel like it's for me, it's always been the fear of losing something that's so much worse than when it's lost. When it's lost, it's like, oh, okay, it's, you know, you can let go of it, it's gone. There's nothing you can do about <laughs> yeah. it. The decision's exactly. made for you, but the stress. The meniscuses are gone. You're, gone. <laughs> You're not rebuilding them. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of, it's very liberating. No losing, yeah. losing. Yeah, but things. the stress is in the anticipation of it, right? Yeah. Or the... And I think that's probably why my kidneys were so bad when I was when I was doing too much is it wasn't apart from the actual stress that it would put on your adrenal glands to be having a distorted um, circadian rhythm and all of that things. Mm -hmm. I think it was that fear. I was so fearful of letting go of what I'd built and what I'd managed Mm -hmm. to pull together, even though it was really small. You know, it wasn't a big thing at all. It was but it was I had done it. And I'd held on to it and um and like what was I gonna do if I didn't have it? Yeah. And then within a week of not having it, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna sleep a little bit more. <laughs> That's really nice. Exactly. <laughs> just be a bit of a nicer person. 
Wait I, a second, you know, I, I can ask, sleep in. This is amazing. I, I <laughs> wanna I wanna make sure just to, to make, sleep into four thirty in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I wanna make sure just that we have a fair and balanced <laughs> podcast. Um that we kinda end on a on a on a nice note. Um I wonder if you could if you could tell us though how the yoga's helped. Because oh, yeah. we've we've kind of just uh dressed it down and yeah. torn it torn to pieces. <laughs> yeah, of course. We still do it. Mm. And then, you know, I and it's I don't know if it helps harmony at all, but it's like it, I think it helps <laughs> I think it helps me. I'm not sure. And um how has it helped? Yeah. And does it continue to? It has definitely helped, I think, and it does continue to help. And I think <clears throat> there were two ways I have of looking at it. And one is that, you know, you can do all the therapy you like. And that will help you intellectually understand all the shit that's happened to you and why it's happened. But it, you can't, you can't intellectualize it out of your body. Mm. And I think that asana really does do that. I think it helps release traumas that are tied up in your physical and neurological system. But also I think it helps you see yourself and your patterns on a daily basis in a way that is revealing and you then find ways of of overcoming or enduring or um, making easier more peaceful so I feel like it works that on a technical level that way um, but I also feel like it in on a spiritual level that that daily commitment to seeking something bigger than yourself, seeking a connection to something bigger than yourself, frees up your attachments to the things that we tell ourselves are important every day and allows love or anything to flow more freely through our systems and our bodies. And I I feel like, and, and when I spoke to... Um, when I was doing the research and I spoke to practitioners who were children of addicts, they did all say that they, they felt freely loving of their parents and forgiving. Mm. And I think that's, that's miraculous mm-hmm. and, um, and really amazing. And that's not to say that I don't have some very strong boundaries in place with my mum, and that I get on with her actually, even um, we still have a really difficult relationship, but the love that I have for her, can flow freely through my body and is absolutely able to go there. If she, if she wanted to receive it, it would be there. Um, and that I feel is, is a fundamental and um, a fundamental result of my yoga practice combined with other things that I've done, but um, allowing love to flow freely through, through yourself and to others and the world. I, th- I think that that's really the the most essential thing is is if we're stuck self-loathing it's because we're we're assigning ourselves to our say our purusha you know we're saying well this 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 shit cake of of samskaras belongs to me mm. This whole fucking story that's uh, disgusting that I'm that I've been assigned to, as long as I 
allow it to be me, then I'm going to be full of self-hate. And I'm going to hate everyone that, that created this situation, Russell Case. And, but, but understanding that, you know, our, our true identity is the observer, you know, watching a, a you know, reality television then then you can sort of fall and just be in love with this and be in love with the actors and and have empathy for them and like oh poor kendall <laughs> poor Logan. Oh, oh, that's also, also really struggling, isn't he? Yeah. And then you just go, you know, then the show ends and you go back to the the eternity of of unconsciousness and um you know merge back into the void and quite happily move on mm. to the next one. It's good. Good next show. Yeah. I'm excited for the next show after succession. <laughs> <laughs> you know we'll see and i and that's i think that's that wouldn't have been ha- possible if i hadn't practiced mm. yeah yeah and that's that's just so beautiful isn't it isn't it that um that ability to love in a space where love was so inhibited and so fought against and um all the odds stacked against it mm-hmm. and yeah there it is still happening and um, and like I said, I think I think understanding also that you can structure that that there is a structure to this experience, like there's a structure to this physical spirit spiritual experience that we're mm-hmm. pursuing that's really laid out and quite clear and concise. And there's a structure to this practice. And my love was also structured. Now it has to be because there are things that I know will result in suffering if I allow them in or, you know, or things that just don't help, they don't help me or they don't help my mum. And those boundaries Mm -hmm. are really important and it can be really hard to hold those in place as well. And especially I think if you move into that spiritual space of, um, of love and light and, you know, spiritual bypassing, I love everyone I can, un- yeah. I can see that they're just suffering too it doesn't happen yeah. You know. um, yeah I think the Ashtanga practice is very good for creating yeah. those firm yeah bound- like creating the strength with yes. the with the flexibility yeah. but the boundaries um, are the strength they are the strength they are the container yeah exactly mm. and that and that that really allows freedom it allows, um, yeah, it allows love to flow freely, and that's what I think it does for me. And I, I uh, am incredibly grateful to it for that. And I'm incredibly inspired by anyone who I see overcoming addiction or surviving the trauma of having addicted parents, because mm-hmm. it's it's coming back from something so dark and so um so sad and tragic and I feel that those people really flourish and grow and blossom in such a incredibly magnetic beautiful way when they do manage to do that that it's a real honor to see and speak to Lucinda I've never actually had the the pleasure of meeting you in person I think (laughs) no (laughs) but I, I I will say that every time I've interacted with you I've always just I've felt I've 
so much admiration for you and your intellect and your mm. your courage to share and i've but i've also kind of also know in my heart being a child out adult child of alcoholic you, you like to party <laughs> I recognize that in other people it's like oh yeah she likes to party yeah. <laughs> I, I used to I go to bed too early now but I know my people you know I recognize yeah. them right away it's like, oh here we go here's a live one and so <laughs> I just um it's 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 real I'm really grateful that you came on the show um because I you know it is it is nice to sit you know, with your people and to share the community, share the foibles of this um, mortal coil and um, so-called life, the so-called charade, charade <laughs> they call life. And, um, and in, uh, it's just, this has been a fabulous talk. And I'm just, again, I just want to say how grateful I am that you came on to yeah. share it with us. Oh. Thank you guys so much. Join you in, are you teaching in person or online? You can, it's hybrid. It's quite small and intimate. It's just on a Friday morning, um, six to eight. So nice and ashtangi early for everyone who wants to get up there. And they're more than welcome to join. And I I am so very grateful and honored to be asked by you guys and to talk with you um, here. It's really nice. And like you say, it just feels so great to talk with people that you feel a familiarity with. And I would encourage anyone who's feeling that way, that they like experiencing the things that we've been talking about to reach out and speak to someone, anyone that either myself or anyone, there are charities and things out there that you can reach out to, um, to talk about Mm. however old you are about your experiences, because it makes a huge difference once you start sharing that story Mm. and, uh, working with it beautiful thank you so much it was such a pleasure to chat with you so much so nice to see you (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me your host harmony slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com and i look forward to connecting with you again soon Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a heart.